multifamily real estate is a very competitive industry. So it's very essential to position yourself correctly. Like stay single family, there are a lot of houses that you can find pretty much anywhere. Multifamily assets, they're mostly controlled by brokers. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to Trevor McGregor. You recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times. Just search Trevor McGregor, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that I did with him, and he has a lot of value during those interviews. Well, he's had a lot of value in my life. For the last five years, I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach. And he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him, I had four single family homes. And oh, by the way, I was also single. Fast forward to today, my company controls over $300 million worth of real estate. And I am happily, happily married. Clearly, results are going to vary, but... He has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com. And you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations, and he actually is pretty full with his consulting program, and he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value, so he's being very selective with the people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him, and then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant. It has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way. Him and his wife have gone to my wedding. Trevor's been to my conference a couple years, and I know him well, and I suggest that you get to know him as well. Coachwithtrevor.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Anna Simpson. How you doing, Anna? Hey, Joe. I'm glad to be here. Well, nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Anna. She is a multifamily investor and a deal sponsor. She's passively invested in over 1,300 multifamily units. And she has also put together her own syndication. She has also been involved in a tenants in common deal, otherwise known as a tick deal. And she's based in Dallas, Texas. She came from Russia in 2004 and is a licensed real estate agent in Dallas, Fort Worth. For her first syndication, she raised $1.4 million. So with that being said, Anna, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. At this point, I'm a multifamily investor and a deal sponsor or syndicator, as you mentioned. So I started my investing career in rental houses. I was buying homes. I was rehabbing them, renting them out. And I also worked as a realtor in Keller Williams in South Lake, Texas. In 2015, I decided to make the move to multifamily. I first invested in 1,300 multifamily doors passively or as a key principal. And then I switched and became a deal sponsor. As you mentioned, for my first deal, I raised $1.4 million. 
and I had 23 equity investors for this deal. For the second deal, I also had the same equity raise, 1.4 million, but this was done in a tick structure or tenants in common. And I only had two other people with whom I did it. And in this deal, I'm a tick manager and I'm also a asset manager. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm in an acquisition mode. My focus is in DFW because that's one of the best markets in the country. So I'm lucky to live here. Well, lots of things to talk about. Let's see. First, let's talk about 1,300 doors passively that you did previously. And I assume you're still involved with some of those or most of those deals, yes, as a passive investor. And you said, or as a KP, can you elaborate on what KP is and also what the difference between investing passively versus being a KP is with those 1,300 units? Sure. When I first started, I basically decided to kind of learn about this business. So I figured the easy way would be just become an equity investor. And I did have the money, so that's where I started. And I basically learned how other deal sponsors communicate with the investors, what they do. And I figured out what are good things to do, what are bad things to do. And then I decided to take a next step, which is to become a KP. And the reason for doing that, you sign on a loan. That's the difference. You become a key principal. You are signing on a loan. You're becoming a guarantor to help someone else to secure agency loan. So this is basically good for your own resume whenever you are ready to start becoming a deal sponsor because the bank is going to be looking at you as an experienced borrower. So that's an important step. What do you risk and what do you receive for signing on the loan? These being non-recourse loans, you really don't risk too much except if your deal sponsor decides to not perform well, potentially may turn into recourse. So that's your risk. So basically you have to choose your deal sponsor very carefully. And what you gain is basically this little plus on your resume. So next time when you are ready to syndicate your own deal and you apply for agency loan, they basically will see that you actually already did it in the past. So it's not your first deal. And do you get additional equity or some sort of fee for signing on the loan? That depends. Let's say if this is really benefits you. So in my case, it was benefiting me and it was not really bringing that much of a difference to the deal sponsor with whom I signed on the loan. So I did not get anything. But let's say if I was a deal sponsor in five deals or something and I was bringing my experience, that would have been a different case. Like right now, I potentially can do it for other people for their equity piece mm-hmm. because now I'm bringing not only net worth and liquidity, but also experience. So that would be more valuable. Back at my first time, I just brought uh, net worth, liquidity, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. What type of equity ownership would someone negotiate in order to have a key principle bring their balance sheet and experience to sign on the loan? Let's say if the deal sponsor gets the sponsor override, let's say it is 10, 15, 20%. So potentially key principal may get 1% or something like this, because essentially they are not doing anything. They're just signing on the loan. So maybe like 1% or 2% out of it they can get. Of the general partnership. Override. Correct. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned as a limited partner, a passive investor, you learned some good things and the bad things of how people operated. Can you tell us about some of the good and bad things you discovered? Just basically communication that some of the deal sponsors provide 
it's essential to communicate with your passive investors because they want to know once they send the money to you, what is exactly happening with the deal. They kind of want to know, are you doing well? So it's not just sending the reports on a monthly basis, but maybe sending pictures, maybe sending updates. So some of these things, like say some investors do it very nicely. They just really update everybody. They explain what's happening. And some people just kind of don't do it very well. So I just kind of learn about this. And of course, making meetings with your investors. So that's a good thing to do. You said you have 23 equity investors on the deal that you put together, $1.4 million raise. Did I write that down correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. How did you find that deal and what can you tell us about it? This deal was originally off market. So I made an offer and they didn't like it originally, but then they took my second offer. So I found it kind of through relationships. So my lender introduced me to this broker. So we knew each other and we kept relationships. And once he got this deal listed, he kind of had me in his mind as his potential buyer. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I found it. Who introduced you to the broker? Or my the lender. My, Your lender. Uh, my got lender. It. Yes. Your lender introduced you to the owner. Did I hear that correct? Or your broker? To the listing broker. To the listing broker. But I thought you said it was off market. Yes. Even off market deals, they're still listed. Okay. They may not be just kind of widely marketed. So, But it went, it went on market later on. So I okay. kind of didn't get it first time, but I got it second time. So initially didn't like your offer, but then it went to the market and you were awarded the deal through that process. Okay. How much did you offer and were they similar terms off market before they shopped it around versus when it got shopped around and you got awarded the deal? It wasn't too much of a difference, but it just in between these two offers, the new financing kind of came through. It was new program that Freddie Mac had for certain submarkets. So basically, my financing became better, so I was able to get better leverage. So that way, I was able to offer a little bit more. And it wasn't much of a difference, but basically, it all came to financing, really. Oh, okay. Because once you get a better financing as a buyer, of course, you can offer a better price. Mm-hmm. What specifically was better between the financing from the first go-around to the second? Basically, this was a new program by Freddie Mac, and this was something about certain zip codes that they considered as affordable and something like this. I don't even remember exactly. So this is not like a cheap zip code on anything. This is in Arlington in a very nice location, but it just fit this bucket for Freddie Mac at the time. So basically, mm-hmm. I just got a better leverage. It was lower before, and it was better on the second time around. Okay. The price for the first go-around versus when you actually bought it, what was the price for each of those? Oh, it wasn't much of a difference. They were asking $4 million, 150 originally. So eventually, I got it for $4 million. So it's not too much of a difference. Okay. And what? what and I did... was offering before four. Mm-hmm. You were offering what? Before I was offering lower than four million, and then I was able to come up and offer four million. Okay, so that's Got what it. they ultimately wanted. Got it. Cool. And that's in Arlington. You found it through your lender. How did you find your lender? He is very known in the industry, and actually, it would be my advice to everybody to create good relationships. So he is well connected here. So pretty much everybody knows him. Mm-hmm. What's the best way to get connected to the people who are connected to everyone else? 
basically when you start in this business, it's just very important to kind of go and find out who is who and made, uh, make it a priority to make uh, significant relationships with the right people. So when I first went into multifamily, I literally went and asked people, who do you know? Who is good here? And I started to kind of meet all the movers and shakers in my market. And I started to create kind of team around myself because this is very much of a team sport, much more than single family. So here you really have to surround yourself with the right people and create your team. So like a lender, mentor, property manager, due diligence professional, insurance. So you just have to find all these people and identify who is going to be on your team. So that was important thing for me. The tick structure, tenants in common, can you elaborate on what that is and then why you chose to structure it that way versus a traditional way? Sure. This particular case, I knew a couple of people that basically had more money than normally people willing to invest because in a syndicated deal, usually people invest, let's say, fifty or seventy-five hundred thousand. So these people, between the, just the two of them, they brought way more. One of them was 1031 exchanger. So basically, he sold his property in another state, and he was ready to deploy this money here in Texas. So we knew each other, and they kind of came to me and said, look, we have this money. We would like to find something here in DFW. We know you. We trust you. And I was working on two off-market deals. So it kind of worked this way that we had enough equity to go ahead and purchase this deal. And the reason we chose the tenants in common structure versus partnership or syndication is because this person was doing 1031 exchange. So he could not be in a partnership. Mm -hmm. This has to be a tenants in common for him to not be disqualified for his tax deferred exchange. Mm -hmm. Because the information from his previous property needed to be on title for the current property, and that's how you're able to do it with the tenants in common. Correct. To be able to not be disqualified, you basically cannot kill the taxpayer, so to say. Say if you're a relinquished property, when you sell the property, it becomes relinquished property. You sell it under your social security or under certain EIN number. You buy the next deal under the same EIN or same social security number. You cannot change it. Otherwise, it's not going to be qualified for exchange. So he had to be in a tenants in common structure because in our case, the three of us, we all own the property and we each have a deed for the property. But it's not a single LLC, it's three LLCs that own this property. So that's kind of how it works. Let's talk a little bit more about that $4 million deal. How many units is it, first off? The second deal, the tenants in common deal, is 76 units in Fort Worth. Okay, sorry, I switched gears on you. I went back to the $4 million deal because that was $4 million, right, the purchase? Yes, yes. Okay. So the first deal, it was 70 units, seven zero in Arlington. Okay, 70 units in Arlington, and then we'll come back to the tick, but 70 units in Arlington, what's the business plan for that? So basically, this deal is in a very good submarket of Arlington. It is rents were very much below market for pretty much no reason. So what we're doing right now, we're aggressively raising rent to be at the market level. And we're also doing certain upgrades on the exterior and on the interior. So my goal is basically just raise the rent, raise the NOI. And once I'm able to, let's say, double the money of my investors, I will be able to sell the deal. What type of structure do you have with your investors? 
So this is just a normal syndication. So this is the LLC where I am a general partner and I have 23 limited partners. So I'm an asset manager over there and I'm taking care of the day-to-day business. But we do have the third-party property management. So I'm basically managing the management company. And with 70 units, some people might think that you'd need to be at 100 units in order to really have the property pay for that management team. So can you elaborate more on that thought? I want to say 60 units and up, you can definitely use the property management company. So we are still paying very reasonable fee. So it's totally makes sense. I would never want to be on a management site, like be there day to day. That's just not what I do. I believe you have to do what you really like. So I like to acquire deals, to analyze the deals and meet the brokers and the equity investors. Like management is not my stuff. So I never even thought about this. So we have very good management fee and I don't see it as a problem. You don't have to be 100 units or anything. 60 and up should be fine. With the interior and exterior upgrades, anything in particular you want to mention that you're doing that might be a little bit different or if not different than just very high ROI? Whenever you are on a buying site, you really want to be looking for the deals that maybe have interiors that have not been upgraded. Because let's say if you put a new boiler or a new roof, that is not going to increase your rent. So basically, you need to find a deal that has a good bones. So you don't have to be putting too much of CapEx, but maybe something that has not been upgraded inside. Because once you do this type of upgrades, you can definitely raise rent. We are raising rent $200 per unit in this particular property. That's because the units were not really upgraded to the level that we are doing right now. So tenants are willing to pay this price for the better looking units. And we do things like backsplash, two-tone paint, just nice flooring, so that kind of thing. And approximately how much are you spending per unit to get those 200 per unit upgrades? So let's say if the flooring is already there because we have some units with a, with a very nice flooring, then it's 3000 Maybe like even 2000 really depends. The units are kind of 800 square foot average size. Wow, 3000 that's quite a return. That's 80% return. <laughs> 80% yes, return. Yes, these properties, yes, we are doing well on this one. That's wow. for sure. Cool. How many of the 70 have you upgraded? At this point, it was maybe around 10. We are kind of in the middle of doing three of them right now. So I don't want to upgrade too many. Because once you're ready to sell the property, you always want to have a good story for your next buyer. So the good story would be that I'm leaving some meat on the bone. You don't want to essentially over-improve your property because it just doesn't make any sense. And of those 10 that have been upgraded, how many have rented for the $200 premium? Oh, all of them. All All of them. them. Outstanding. It's Arlington. (laughs) We have no problem with that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Based on your experience... What is your best real estate investing advice ever? I want to kind of say that multifamily real estate is a very competitive industry. So it's very essential to position yourself correctly. Like stay single family, there are a lot of houses that you can find pretty much anywhere. Multifamily assets, they're mostly controlled by brokers. Even if they're off market, they still kind of come from the brokers most of the time. So it's important to position yourself in the market and keep a very good reputation among listing brokers and among owners communities. So kind of three things that I 
thought I would give away as advice. So those three things really helped me to succeed. So first one, as I mentioned, relationships. You really have to leverage good relationships in this business to be successful. So for me, early on, I made it a priority to build very good relationships with the right people. And when you start, I recommend that you kind of concentrate on that. Because as a multifamily buyer, you're basically doing two things. You find deals and you find money. So to be able to find deals, you have to have relationships with brokers. And to find money, you have to have relationships with the equity investors. So basically, that one thing. The second one, for me, it was very important to create the momentum. So basically what it means, like once you're in the game, it's important to keep it active. So what I mean by that is uh, you always want to be staying on top of the mind of the brokers. You always have to call them, remind about yourself. So once they have a deal, whether it's off market or on market, they think about you as a potential buyer. And the same goes for equity investors. You don't want to disappear on them. Even let's say if you don't have a deal right now to offer to them, you always want to keep the connection with them so they know that you are actively involved in the business. So that's another thing. And the third one, important to create, treat multifamily investing as a business, not as a hobby. Because I see a lot of people that come here and they think it's easy and they kind of uh, like a doublers. So it's important to just really keep on track, set your goals and have a plan how to reach these goals and follow through. And once you reach the goal, basically set a bigger goal and uh, go for the bigger goal. Push your limits. Always, always push your limits. It's important to be very intentional. Say if you have a goal, like say you want to buy your first apartment complex. So just kind of assess the actions as you take actions. Figure out whatever you're doing. Is it taking you closer to your goal or is it taking you further away from the goal? So I'm kind of identifying the priority of what I have to be doing and kind of acting on that. couple follow-up questions. Let's talk about relationships. You are from Russia and you came to Dallas in 2004, is that correct? I first came to Plano, was there for like a year and a half, and then I'm based in Grapevine. So it's in the middle of DFW. (laughs) Got it. All right, DFW. But you came from Russia in 2004, yes? Correct. All right, how many people did you know when you came to Dallas-Fort Worth? Hey, not too many. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's the root of why I'm asking this. So you came in 2004, didn't know very many people from a different country for someone who is in a situation similar to yours and they're listening to this show how do they build the right relationships like tactically how do they do that okay so basically i usually say fish in the pond where there's a fish so essentially if you know that you want to be successful in certain industry let's make it multifamily Figure out if you have any multifamily groups in your market and go join them because there will be some groups unless you're in some kind of rural setting, it's going to be something. So like in GFW, we have a lot of real estate related groups, multifamily related. So basically, you go there and you start meeting the right people and you start building your relationships. You don't want to kind of go on the street and start pitching this business to people who don't know anything about it. Same goes for equity investors. It's easier to find equity investors in the real estate groups because they're already kind of sold on real estate investing. You don't have to explain why. 
So what I did, I basically started joining these groups. That's how I started. Okay. As far as number two, you said momentum and really staying top of mind with brokers and equity investors. How do you stay top of mind with brokers and equity investors? Sure. So as far as brokers go, I have a list of, let's say, 10 brokers that I really would like to keep on top of them all the time because they have deals regularly. Sometimes they have off-market deals. So what I personally do, I either email them or call them pretty much every week. So they know that it's kind of like when I started first buying houses, my agent told me, be a squeaky wheel. So I said, oh, okay, <laughs> i be a squeaky wheel. So basically, you just always kind of remind about yourself to the point that they just want to give you something. Just, hey, let's give her a deal so she <laughs> gets busy with it. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so every week, every week I have a list of brokers that I contact and basically ask, do you have something? You know what I want. And very often, especially now that I have a couple of deals under my belt, they just call me themselves and say, look, I have a deal. I think this is what you want. Mm-hmm. So. Let's say you have now emailed this broker for four weeks straight. What does the four-week email, what is in that email? Basically, I try to have a very personal relationship with all of them. So the, the brokers that I personally know. So this is not just kind of like go on dot loop, find 10 names and start emailing them. No, you have to really know them. I know them personally. I know their family. I know what they do. So I meet them at different events. So all of these guys, I have very good chance to have something from them. So this, this is not a cold call, essentially. Mm-hmm. This is a very warm call. So all of these people already created relationships. So this fourth email or 10th email, that basically can be different. Like, mm-hmm. how are you doing? How was your Christmas? Or how was your multifamily conference? And by the way, do you have something for me? So yep. That's kind of how it is. Got it. So it's getting to know them personally and also knowing what else they're working on or experiencing, or maybe it's just seasonal based on if there's a holiday or something, talk to them about that, genuinely caring about the answer, and then also reminding them about what you're looking for. Absolutely. So you don't sound like a machine. It's like every week it's the same, hey, how are you? Do you have something? So it's really very personal because I genuinely care about what they have to say, say about this conference that you just had in January. So I care. What they, what was the experience? What did they come there from? So kind of, it, I care. It's interesting for me to hear this. So we have a relationship. So how that's would, kind of how it goes. If you were investing in Chicago, since you don't live in Chicago, what would your approach be for following up with them and getting to know brokers since you're not in the market? I say I would travel there first and personally meet them because nothing can beat the personal relationship. So when I first started, as far as meeting the brokers, I actually went and scheduled meetings with them. Several brokers, literally, I went to their offices or maybe took them out for coffee or something like this because you got to do it until they meet you and look you in the eye, just really understand that you're a real person. And also very important to show them that you actually already invested in the multifamily so you're not single-family guy with a couple of houses. Now you want to try multifamily. So it was important for me that I was already invested in 1,300 doors. And uh, they knew the sponsors with whom I invested. So that Mm -hmm. was a big deal. Great stuff. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Absolutely. 
All right. Well, absolutely. Let's do it. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. Are you seeking investors, negotiating deals, and making things happen? The Seven Figure Sales Podcast has what you need. Host Taylor Lloyd interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. Learn more at sevenfiguressalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Best ever book you've read? Reach that for that. Hands down. <laughs> Best ever deal you've done that's not the first one and not the last one? I was going to say my first one. Well, I think that it's so difficult to go from zero to one. So my first deal was really my best one, really. And the reason is, this is how you get in the game. And once you get in the game, this is like a new life starts. So I should what? say my first one. Sorry. <laughs> What's your second best ever deal? Maybe one of my houses. I put $15,000 in it and I pulled out like seventy, and I was cash flowing during three years. I guess was one of the best ones also. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? My biggest mistake was when I was still doing the rental houses. So I paid for one of these houses. I paid more than I should have. And I basically ended up doing a lot of projects myself, literally. So I hated it. And I vouched to myself to never do it again and never work in my business, but actually work on my business. So it's kind of important to remember when you buy something, you make money on the purchase. So if you overpay, it's going to take you a long time to recover. And probably you're not going to make as much money as you wanted to make. So that was in my case. I didn't lose money because it was several years ago. And uh, as you know, the market is very good. So the market was very forgiving. So I didn't lose any. Actually, I made money, but I didn't make as much as I could. So do not overpay for sure. <laughs> Best of way you like to give back. I like to volunteer at real estate events and specifically with the people who originally helped me succeed in this business. So I always volunteer my time to just go there and do whatever they want me to do, just volunteering. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? The best way would go to my website is www.simpsonmultifamily.com. However, did you come up with that name? Hey, that was easy. My last <laughs> name and multifamily. <laughs> Well, Anna, thank you so much for being on the show. I love the lessons learned. Very helpful for everyone, not only people putting the deals together, not only people passively investing deals to get a glimpse of the evolution of things, but also just real estate investors in general, because there are some tried and true principles that you discussed. One is for how to position yourself in a market, especially with multifamily, but really anything one, focus on relationships, so focus on relationships with the right people. And as you say, fish in the pond where there are fish. Very simple and really helps us hone in on where should we focus our efforts, at least initially. You came from a different country about 10 or so years ago, and you've built this up. And it's interesting to hear how you approach it because anyone starting out certainly can approach it similar way and have some success Two is maintain momentum with your brokers as well as equity investors. Actually, I meant to ask this question, so I want to ask it. I asked you about how you stay top of mind with brokers. How do you stay top of mind with your equity investors? So I have a meetup that I have, and I also go to other people's meetups. 
and these are basically we have like maybe 15 people always kind of 50 50 so you constantly network with these people and just go to all the other local rear just basically meet all these people over and over again so they know where you are and what you're doing and then the third thing is treat the business as a business not as a hobby and assess results as you continue to go so one focus on relationships and build the relationships with the right people two stay top of mind with brokers and equity investors and then three is treated as a business not a hobby thank you so much for being on the show hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon thank you joe i appreciate are you seeking investors negotiating deals and making things happen the seven figure sales podcast has what you need Host Taylor Lloyd interviews real estate investors, sales trainers, and successful entrepreneurs to bring you their top sales secrets. Learn more at sevenfiguresalespodcast.com and listen on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.